Tonight I'd like to talk about the hindrances. <laughs> Actually, I just want to start by um, telling you that I'm, I'm feeling a little, uh, only word I can think of is a Yiddish word. It's schmutz, a little schmutzy, a little, little <laughs> under the weather, and, um, not, so, um, not so clear and and so I, it was very difficult for me today to actually focus on what I wanted to say tonight. But what I mostly just wanted to do was, uh, was to connect with you, just to, um, for us to utilize a, a very central element of the, of the teachings, which is really the secret ingredient in what allows us to make that uh, profound shift from just being carried along by the, uh, by the stream of distress, you could call it, just being carried along by it, shifting from that to being able to notice it, being able to find a, a space of knowing and noticing that allows you to, to be at ease, to be balanced, to be open, even when the going gets tough. And that secret ingredient is the same quality in your mind that you use to listen to a Dharma talk, to draw your attention to this vital point right here, to these words. It is a, a quality in our mind that the, the Buddha called vitaka. Vitaka is the capacity that all of us have in our minds to connect. It is, in my view, and some of you have heard me go off on this one, uh, to me this is the, the starting point of, of um, this is the springboard to love. This is the starting point to intimacy. This is the starting point to all of the, uh, all of awakening all the wholesome factors that we have within our heart and mind. And literally, the, one of the, the seed causes of what the Buddha called the sure heart's release, a sense of freedom. The first quality is, as I said, vitaka. That's that quality that allows us to take our scattered mind, just unfocused, either scattered or just unfocused, not anywhere, and gather together to one point, to one area, and then uh, the second quality is a quality called uh, vichara, which is uh, sometimes described as sinking into or staying with, sustained. So connecting and sustaining. This to me is the, um, the love muscle. There is no doubt that when you really take someone in in your life, you really take, you, you meet them, you look into their eyes, you connect with them, and you stay connected to them, this is what is the cause of, um, of a sense of stirring that we may feel, a sense of, um, a sense of what the Buddha called sukha, a sense of we start to feel a sense of comfort. Then we start to feel a sense, what he called pity, which is a sense of intense interest. And I don't want to go too far on the word intense, but a kind of rapt attention. And what flows from that is a feeling of, of being only there, just there, just with that person. Now that sounds, it doesn't sound like we do that very often. I'm at least in my own mind, we don't do that very often. And it's part of the reason that we often walk around in our lives feeling a little bit disconnected, a little bit apart from the flow of life. And then uh, because we feel apart from the flow of life, disconnected, feel that dis-ease, the charge of that tends to spawn a lot, of, a lot of worry and a lot of strategy and a lot of, what do I do about this? 
And once we've entered into that whole strategizing, freaking out, uh, how am I going to finally feel home or connected, most of the activity that our mind tends to engage in just increases the sense of disease. And so it, it takes a, a certain intentionality to, uh, even though it's a very natural part of our capacity, but it takes a certain intentionality because of our conditioning to actually gather our attention when we connect with someone. For me to not just give a talk, but to actually look at you, take you in, and to remind me, mind myself that I'm in the same room with you. Because I could easily get into having felt uh, schmutzy, sick, or whatever. I could easily just be kind of caught in the, the story of being un, um, unhealthy and wanting to just get through the Dharma talk. But, but it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. We have this capacity. We are trainable to awaken a sense of connection and intimacy. And it turns out that these very qualities that get awakened through connecting and sustaining are the very qualities that serve as antidotes, as antidotes to the, uh, the mental states that often uh, torment us, that often keep us very much in a state of confusion and a state of searching and a state of dissatisfaction and a, and a trance uh, that has a, a kind of central conviction that I can't be happy now. Do any of you have any of those today? Because <laughs> it's likely you were visited by one of the five common mental states that uh, are sometimes called hindrances, sometimes called obscurations, sometimes called, um, um, sometimes they're called uh, defilements. I don't like to, uh, to describe them in a pejorative sense because the beauty of mindfulness practice, of training our attention to know what's happening and to stay with what's happening, that as we've mentioned uh, throughout the retreat already, and what is unique to a human being is that those very experiences that torment us, that drive us crazy, when they go unnoticed, when they're just glanced at or just recalled, when they go unnoticed, glanced at or recalled, they drive us, they, dr they make us feel really, really uh, dissatisfied, often leave us in a sense of what I call a sense of suspended well-being. I can't be happy now. They turn, these mental states turn the present moment into something that we're just kind of passing through on our way to someplace else or into the enemy or an obstacle, as, as Eckhart Tolle put it. But when they are noticed, again, that unique capacity of a human being, when something is brought under the light of attention, the very thing that torments us becomes our path. It becomes the cause of our awakening. It becomes the, the, that which tenderizes our hearts that actually leads to love. And that is uniquely human, that our difficulties become our path. And we know that in general, that, that you go through a lot of stuff in your life. It tends to make you very sympathetic. That's why I think it's Hafiz, it may be Rumi, but in one of his poems he says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Now, if you think about this for a moment, loneliness is a um, loneliness is being alone with aversion. It's a state of aversion. It's a state of being alone and not liking it at all. But if you, as the poem says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly, let it cut more deep. He says, let it ferment 
and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something, it goes on to say, something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of the divine absolutely clear. If I really let myself feel the full impact of that, I, it becomes such a source of, of sweetness and tenderness. Very rare do we do that, though. We usually immediately uh, go in search uh, of something innocently to relieve it. But in some way, it's easy to talk about it, it's another to actually deal with it, in some way we deprive ourselves of that, that unique experience of turning our difficulty into the path. So we have this amazing capacity to right here, sitting in this very room, the very nature of your own mind, nobody else's mind, to take a very difficult situation, and I imagine the last couple days have not been such a picnic. This is the, why do we talk about the hindrances on the second night? Because for most of us, it is, it's been a pretty steady flow of hindrances. Some teachers say the hindrances are the practice. <laughs> Some say the practice is easy, it's just the hindrances that are difficult. But most of you have probably been uh, struggling. Now let me name them, and then we'll get back to the, talking about the, the light of awareness, that capacity that we have. The first mental state that may be the most common is the mental state of wanting. The desire for sense, some kind of sense experience other than the one that you're having. The second one, the flip side of the first one, aversion, ill will, irritation, frustration, fear, anger, you know, the full, the whole range of flavors, boredom even flavor of aversion, the mind that says, not enough going on here, or too much going on here, or someone here uh, shouldn't be here. <laughs> we'll get more into that a little later. The third one, we could do them in any order, uh, sometimes called sloth and torpor, dull mind. Uh, heavy mind, um, depressed mind, flat affect, uh, sloth and torpor. The fourth one, restlessness and agitation, restlessness and worry. And the fifth one, uh, uh, skeptical doubt doubt or confusion. Any of you have any of those today? <laughs> when these are present, it doesn't feel like what we're doing is working. But it's remarkable how in one moment of, a, of let's say, aversion, one moment when you, you're, you heard an unpleasant sound in the room. We mentioned this morning uh, loud breathing. Now that loud breathing produces a little uh, feeling tone that Mary Grace shared with you this morning. It produces for many people, for some people that may produce, a, it may have an association with pleasant. Some people, we're all conditioned differently, but let's say that you're one of those people who, when you hear the sound of someone else's breath, it triggers an unpleasant feeling in your heart and mind. You just don't, something, it's unpleasant. Very quickly, unpleasant is, especially when it goes unnoticed, when there's not really careful mindfulness right there, very easily gets followed by dislike. Unpleasant, followed by dislike. 
the dislike produces a little charge, creates a little tension, dislike. And there's often a physical corollary to that. We can start to notice that. But often this cycle happens very quickly and dislike follows very quickly into um, uh, some very strong, uh, stronger reaction of, um, of craving to get rid of that sound. And the craving to get rid of that sound, a kind of anger at that sound, that produces a kind of inner tension too that has a physical corollary. But often that goes unnoticed and very quickly what that then spawns is uh, a whole, it's like a pr the pressure of that creates a whole story. It's the story of aversion. It's the story of how that person should not be breathing the way they are. They're wrecking my meditation. It's interesting how everything starts to be about me. It's not just we've moved far from just the bare experience of hearing. We've, it's moved into the whole domain of the, my personal drama, all about me. And we do this so innocently, so quickly. And then it's following from that, because there's so much disturbance at this point, once we're so living in that disconnected world of our, of, of our imagination, which is all about trying to find relief, all about trying to feel better, but because we're circling around in that in our little in our little imaginary world, there's really no relief there. And then we start contemplating some choices, and that's a legitimate thing to do once you you have to think about it a little bit. Should I move? Should I tell the teacher to make an announcement? Should I put a big note on the board? Should I just scream out in the middle of the hall? Not really. What do I do about this? So you could, a person can wander a long time in that internal drama, as you probably did in one of your uh, aversive stories today. Could have been many people react to some of the form, you know, seeing people walk slowly. People react to the, the bowing that happens. They react to seeing any signs of religiosity. Uh, they, it's fertile ground. And the room is fertile ground. Humans are fertile ground for, for these kinds of reactions. Our life is fertile ground for that. But we can spend a long time wandering in a little sea of misery, a sea of torment. Or we can, if we have the, um, if we have the um, interest, and if there is a certain momentum uh, for what we've been doing, we can wake up. We can notice, oh, this is aversion. See, I could have spun out a whole story tonight about being, uh, being under the weather. And as I even say this right now, I, I remember a time I remember this time a lot because it was one of the most important experiences I ever had, believe it or not. And it was all around being, uh, being really sick. I felt, um, I went to visit a teacher in India and I, on my journey to see him, I made several different stops. And before the last stop, I ate in the wrong place. <laughs> and got, uh, got whatever bacterial infection that had all of my orifices screaming and releasing. Don't need to say more about that. <laughs> and on top of that, I got high fever and uh, really, really uncomfortable. So naturally, out of, um, out of love for myself, I. I got in bed, took whatever I needed to take, but slowly, slowly, I got into the whole experience of, of being sick. And I had just um, met this wonderful teacher and had already, my first encounter with him was quite extraordinary. 
And I was very anxious to get back to see him, but I was, my body was not feeling very well. And, but finally I started to feel a little bit better. And I made my way along this long, long walk across uh, several bridges and along the, this, the Ganges River in this holy town called Hardwar in India, across the river and, and kind of dragged my body into to see him. There's more of the story that I don't need to tell you. To things were, I'll just give you a little snippet. I bought some bananas as I was walking up the block to his little kuti that he was staying in, the little house. And these monkeys jumped out of a tree and took my bananas. And, and that, that just freaked me out a little bit. Anyway, so anyway, I got into the, I got into the, um, to the little place and I had to walk up several flights of stairs to this little room where he was sitting and he greeted me at the door and he looked at me and he said, how are you feeling? Because he had known that I was, I was under the weather and he had sent me food and was concerned and he, he was a, remarkable how he, um, how you felt his care, for, even from a distance uh, and he, he really felt the genuineness of it. So you would think that he would just want to kind of massage my heart with his, uh, with his caring, but th this time he brought out a, a sword, a gentle sword. And the way that happened was he asked me how I was feeling. And I said to him, I'm, uh, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me at that point, and he, with that kind of piercing gaze, and he said, where is sick? And I couldn't find sick. I still had some symptoms that were operating, but I couldn't find the whole drama of sick anymore. That was a whole story. That was the story of aversion. That was the story of me. That was my situation. That wasn't my immediate experience. My immediate experience was, I'm feeling better, happy to see you. And interestingly enough, once that, that, um, that whole reactive story was kind of seen through, all of a sudden I felt this intense increase in vitality. That, that the very idea of, of my reaction to what was going on was keeping, the, was keeping the lid on my sense of well-being. This was just the train of aversion in some way. Something we all do in one way or another. So just think about what you, what where your train has taken you, where your story is, your situation. In the meditation practice, bringing the light of attention, connecting and sustaining, we just find what's immediate. We find that we're all just here together tonight. That whatever we brought here to the retreat, whatever our unique wonderful, compelling drama. And when I say drama, I don't want to minimize it because we, we've, this is one of the ways that we connect is even around our, our different stories. But what is, what is possible through our meditation practice is to begin to see the difference between that that whole sea of reactions and the stories around them and just the bare simplicity of aversion or desire or restlessness or worry or doubt or just sensation as was offered this morning. Painful sensation, pleasurable sensation, pleasant, unpleasant, some neither pleasant or unpleasant. What the Buddha saw when he sat under the Bodhi tree, what kind of cut through, what really helped him come out of the tangle of, um, of fear, the tangle of confusion, was he saw that there are, in any moment, and something that we can become quite intimate with here, that in any moment there are just six experiences. 
There are just six experiences that repeat themselves in our lives. There is seeing, there's hearing, there's smelling, there's tasting, there's touching, felt experience, and there's cognizing or thinking and knowing it. And that's it. This famous sutra called the all. In the seen, there's just what's seen. In the heard, just what's heard. The smell, just what's smelled. Tasted, just what's tasted. That's all. No, no extra. But often we miss this. And in the missing of it, because of a lack of awareness, because of absent-mindedness, we wander a long time in these, um, in these mental states. That's why they're called kilesa. That's why they're called torments of the mind, because they keep us in a, in a trance, this trance of wanting. Where does it keep us? Where does the wanting mind, when a pleasant feeling, come, a pleasant thought comes into our mind, and our mind goes off in fantasy? Some person today was, said they were having very pleasant thoughts. I think that was you. Very pleasant thoughts. Our thoughts start going into the world of, of pleasant ideas. Now, I'm not saying in your case, but very often there's a pleasant thought based on some kind of, it could have been some immediate sense experience, but off we go on a, on a, little, um, on a little tear. Now, I, I had one of those little tears on one retreat. I had a thought in the middle of a retreat that uh, because of an old association with the game of football, I'm outing myself tonight as a lover of football, because of my associations and where I grew up where people really liked football, it was kind of like the state religion, the gathering sense of community, thought of it came into my mind. It was that time of year when the annual game, it was always the most special game. The thought came into my mind, love to see that football game. Produced a very strong, pleasant feeling. And the wanting mind often produces very, very pleasant feelings on the surface. Had I, on the other hand, at that moment, explored the underbelly of that fantasy. What was actually happening in my body as I, uh, as superficially, I started spinning out in how much I wanted to watch this game and how much fun it would be and how I would do it and where I would go. If I would have felt the underlying universe, I would have noticed that my stomach had tightened up. From that moment forward, I was in a state of desire, but more importantly, I was in a state of suspended happiness. My happiness then depended on fulfilling that desire. What did that do to the present experience I was having? It turned into my pass-through on my way to the, watch the football game. The only place that I can find my life the only place that you can find your life, right here, becomes a pass-through. It becomes a place that I can't be completely happy. Now, this we're not talking about the desire for a meal that comes from hunger, or the desire for sleep that comes from tiredness. We're talking about the, the proliferation of uh, desire for or places and things and and this we have taken this to an art form in our culture we've we've developed this um, kind of unlimited insatiable appetite for more new better different so that's something that um, we come by honestly and innocently in this case it was um, it was so compelling Oh, I forgot to say that I was two months into a three-month meditation retreat. <laughs> and it turned out that I presented this dilemma I was having to one of my interview teachers, a person who was hanging out at the retreat center 
who had been practicing but had stopped practicing to take care of his, uh, his partner at the time who was pregnant and was having some uh, difficulties with her pregnancy, he overheard my conversation with the teacher, wrote me a note, and offered to drive me in silence <laughs> to watch the football game. <laughs> So as I think about that now, that is, that's Mara, that I will, I, will, I will give you the pleasure that you want. That's Mara, the personification of that mind that says, this is really the secret to happiness. And then someone else actually <laughs> feeding that in the middle of a three-month retreat. It's, a, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I did go to the game. <laughs> and the good news, because I did, the, even though I did fall into delusion when it came to this, and so you have to be respectful of how strong some of this forces, this is almost built into our, our brain development, this wanting mind and this state of dissatisfaction. But because I had been planting that seed of, of awareness, I paid very close attention to the, the, as much as I could to the activity of going and seeing what happened and then what the results were. And it was so profoundly um, unsatisfying, <laughs> embarrassing, <laughs> shameful in a way. I felt, of course, what happens when, when, we, when we fulfill the desire? We're certain most often that it's that object that gave us a sense of pleasure and relief. But what really gives the sense of relief is the passing away of that feeling of being held hostage, the passing away of that, that state of craving, that state of suspended happiness. And as that passed away, and I felt the relief of it passing away, there I was 30 miles 40 miles from the meditation center, that life had ended, that little complete drama had ended, and there I was in a new drama of the one who was uh, embarrassed about it. <laughs> but fortunately, it became the, the cause of um, the inspiration to really give myself wholeheartedly to, this, um, to the process of practice. And other times, I can say that that I experienced that shift in real time, not after the end of the, the drama, in real time. It's something that you can do again and again on the retreat. I'm glad I'm talking about this on the retreat uh, because you can, in the midst of one of those desires, and the simplest example that most of you will notice on the retreat is the desire for the bell to ring. That, that becomes the great cause of happiness, the secret to happiness. <laughs> and the next time that that desire comes, and you'll notice, you'll know the desire, it may have started with some unpleasant feeling, but it's soon followed by, when's the bell going to ring? So we're waiting, we're hoping. And what we invite you to do in working with that mental state of waiting or wanting is to, just for a few moments, even though you're certain that the bell is the secret to your happiness, take your attention away from the bell. So you can interchange this with anything that you're fixated on right now. Anything that is on your, uh, your must-have list. Any way that, and you're registering it as a, uh, I'm, I'm not, I won't be okay unless I get it. Take your attention off the object, in this case the, the bell, and feel what it's like to be in a state of wanting. The light of attention has, a, has an impact. The light of awareness has an impact. Whatever you put the attention on, it begins to, attention begins to pull the stickiness, the stuckness in that state of mind. Starts to break the trance a little bit. Generally, 
when wanting the bell to ring, if you actually feel that experience, it will usually reveal itself. It'll open to you as a changing field of sensation, as a changing state of mind. And often, although you, went, you can't pay attention to it in order for this to happen, but more often than not, it will fade away and the bell may not have even rung yet and you're feeling content. You're feeling the cessation of wanting. This is the power of, um, of mindful attention. Rumi, in his poem called It Felt Love, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. We may not appreciate that in this very room, with this very mind that you have, it is, it is a light. It is a light that dispels darkness, that opens up, that allows your mind and body to open up, allows whatever you notice to open up. It's the, the metaphor of, of stumbling around a dark room. When you turn the light on, that situation becomes much more workable. You know where you're going. You can see the path. It is the same with these very mental states. Without that light, we wander a long time confused. And it's not just a glancing light, as I said before. It's not just kind of knowing that there's wanting in your mind. Mindfulness as the tool that we use, as the aspect of that light of awareness. Mindfulness is this quality that knows what it is that's happening. It's, the way it's talked about is it knows the object. It knows the experience. But it's a quality that the, the Buddha talked about as having three aspects to it. Three things that reflect the, the, um, what, my, what makes mindfulness different than our kind of pop version of, you know, I was mindful that I did not to leave my keys or whatever we say we're mindful of. It's kind of part of our conventional jargon now. But mindfulness is actually an extreme observing power. It's a laser-like observing power. Mary Grace used the word penetrating. But it has three, these three qualities. One is described as, uh, I think the more militaristic view was confrontational. But I like to think of it as face-to-face. -face. Like you and I are face-to-face. -face. So we're actually right here. We're not just kind of vaguely aware of being in the room. We're right here together. It's face-to-face. -face. And so whatever you're paying attention to, face-to-face. -face. The second quality is described as a non-superficial, which means your attention co can go into something. So as we feel, and as Mary Grace offered this morning, we feel the sensations. We don't just pay attention at a distance, because at a distance, pain just looks like a monolith. It looks like pain. But when we come a little closer to it, when our awareness is non-superficial, that reveals itself as this dynamic sea of sensations and vibrations and all those flavors that she talked about, squeezing, stabbing, burning, heat, cool, fire, whatever it might be. Nothing within that, that once one comes a little closer to that, nothing in that that is solid, nothing in that that is, uh, that is stuck. And it's the same when awareness is brought to anything we begin to see that it's not just this one thing. And it's seeing things at such a great distance that tends to cause us to make a big story out, to make it seem like that's what's going on, instead of seeing that in the moment, oh, this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening, many things are happening. So this quality of non-superficiality, sinking into, and then the last one is it has a, a quality of... Um, of it, its quality is sustained, that you stay with the experience. And when we talk about investigation in our practice, 
what mindfulness investigates is not why something's here. Occasionally you want to reflect on why something may be showing up. You can ask certain questions and this and that. But the mindfulness that we're actually training in and how we actually work with some of these hindrances as they emerge and as we take our attention out of the story, out of the object, and feel what that experience is like, desire or aversion, our investigation is what the quality is that's felt and what happens to that experience when we notice it. So how, what, how do things, how, how's that working? So we're much more interested in meditative awareness, especially working with the hindrances, in the process of them. And once we pay attention, once you pay attention, for example, to the wanting mind, you feel the wanting mind, you feel its quality in your body. You recognize it as a changing experience. It becomes much more obvious that that wanting came into the body all by itself. It emerged. It had this flavor to it. And without any interference, especially if there's awareness, it passed away by itself. You can see that that wanting was wanting. It wasn't somebody in there who was wanting. That's a whole extra story. There's just this experience of wanting. It's the same with aversion. Once you've taken your attention off of the, of the person who's walking too fast or making noise or opening the doors uh, too, in whatever way or whatever it is that you're railing against, if you take your attention off of that, you feel that flavor in your body of aversion, the felt experience of it the turbulence, the, the sense of I can't, and the, you can actually feel the sense that I, I'm stuck here, I can't be happy. You feel that a little bit, you see that that's just happened. And it's a, it's a changing condition. It's a weather pattern. We just notice it like that. It is also useful to notice, in, as opposed to just feeling everything uh, as a felt experience in our body. That's very much part of it. And that helps to cut through some of the indulgence in the, in the extension of the stories. But it's also interesting to notice that connection between the story we're telling and the felt sense in our body. Notice when you're, when you're feeling worried, restless. Often there's a little story, isn't there? There's a story of, of what's going to happen to me. What's going to happen on this retreat? What's going to happen in my life? Our mind has projected this whole thing called future. It doesn't exist. It's just an idea. But yet our mind projects this whole thing called future. Throw it, and we throw it somewhere in front of us, and then our body goes into a state of, of, um, of tension. Once I've tethered myself to what's next, there's always that chance that whatever's next isn't going to make me happy. And of course, I'm, then I'm worried. Any of you ever experienced that? <laughs> Worry, it's, it's so um, hypnotic. It's so, it's so compelling. But Hafiz suggests uh, in his poem, he says, find a better job. He says, now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why not find a better job? <laughs> but how can we find a better job until we actually notice in a very clear way the, both the, the story of worry and how our mind projects that and then the reverberation in our body. We actually take an interest in it. And interestingly enough, once you come out of that story, you notice the story, you appreciate it, you respect it, but you actually feel the sense of turbulence. Not easy to be with, the turbulence. But once you feel the turbulence, the turbulence is just turbulence. Worry is just worry in that moment. It's just you've anchored your attention back to here and now. 
And it is through the anchoring of our attention here and now, because worry is always about what's next. It's never about what's happening right now. Once we anchor our attention back to our present experience, which is not always easy. Sometimes we have to do a little dance. Sometimes the turbulence is so much that we need to touch into it a little bit and then move away, touch into it, maybe breathe, maybe give it a lot of space. Some of the antidotes for, for restlessness. Uh, the traditional one is, is sukha. The, I talked about those f- five qualities when I, uh, when I started. Connecting, sustaining, and with connecting and sustaining comes a sense of comfort and contentment. Comes in our practice. Every time as your mind and body have come together, and I can feel it in the room. The room has settled. I know you go through a lot of the hindrances, but there's also an increased likelihood that there are moments of contentment. It is the natural fruit. It is a a natural product of being right here as we start to feel a sense of contentment. And because contentment is actually an unconditioned quality, it's intrinsic in our nature, it's something you can call upon at times that that you're really restless. You can invite it in, in other words, contentment. And see how the restlessness responds to that. So this is how some of these, uh, these factors, comfort, contentment, some of the fruits of a mind that is well connected, collected and composed become antidotes to uh, some of these more turbulent mental states. So we have desire, aversion, we have restlessness and agitation and worry. Then we have sloth and torpor. We've talked a little bit about that, about the, sometimes about the imbalance between, between energy and um, tranquility. As we, sometimes we, we have a little bit more quietness as uh, some people, the Tibetans call it um, this quiet mind with not much awareness. They call it stupid meditation. <laughs> but they don't really judge it because it's, um, because it's actually very healing to have, be really quiet and really dull. But you don't learn much, you don't see much, but it's actually quite healing for our mind and body. And when this starts to happen and we st- our mind starts to sink, it, it's not, there's no great harm. But again, you won't see so much when that's the case. So it's a sign that there is a need of some energy. And so all the things that we described of using the walking practice, taking a very precise posture, opening the eyes, pulling on the ears, um, increasing the speed of your walking, um, things that arouse energy, standing practice. Sometimes, though, sloth and torpor isn't just an energy situation. Sometimes it's just a mental state, a habit, a place that we go to. Uh, sometimes as a threshold to, uh, to feeling um, underlying moods or emotions. Sometimes just when we're about to feel something, we just start to glaze over. It, sometimes a way that we check out. It can be a real habit. The good news in practice is that we turn our attention toward it. Rather than, than immediately use all of these strategies, we notice, what is this like? this state. We feel how it manifests in our body. We feel how it, how it hangs over our mind like a wet, dark cloud or blanket. We let ourselves feel that and we arouse. We, uh, we actually use that quality. And I think traditionally, I have to look, at, look this up, but I'm pretty sure that the traditional antidote for sloth and torpor is the very quality that I talked about first tonight. It's the quality traditionally called vitaka or aiming or gathering. So if you very much gather your attention, you focus your attention, that sometimes will perk up the energy. So you focus your attention right on the state of mind itself. Experiment with that. And then last but not least, we have the what I would consider the, um, 
the most undermining, the most debilitating, the most, uh, uh, the one that most, you know, it's so interesting when you're sitting here, and it's doubt I'm talking about, you're sitting here, there's really not much happening. In fact, nothing's really happened since you got here. A lot of internal and external, a lot of things, they've come and they've gone, but it's not that. It's mostly, a, uh, it's mostly dramatic in our mind. We really, we've really just been right here, and this whole thing has taken off. And so we can have a moment where we can see and experience how simple it all is, just here, just these six experiences. But with doubt, there can be a little thought. It's often a neighbor, let's say, looks like they're sitting really straight. We just notice that the person sitting us next to us is sitting really straight. And then a little thought comes into the mind. Again, nothing much happening. That little thought, I don't sit that straight. Do you know, I always slouch. And, you know, I'm, I'm really just a slouch. Everything I try, I'm, I just slouch. I just kind of crumble. I'm just not good at anything. And I'm certainly not good at this meditation. Everyone else here, they look like all you know, Buddha plants. And, and, and I look like a shriveled up weed. This is how everything goes for me. And I might as well just give up. Now, nothing really happened except I jumped on the, and especially if it went unnoticed, I jumped on the doubt train. And before I knew it, I went from fine, minding my own business, just being myself, to feeling like the, uh, the most hopeless human being there is. And that's, uh, that's the story of doubt. What am I doing here? Why did I come? I can't do it. It's too hard. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. This is a very common state of mind. And if it goes unnoticed, it tends to take off into the story of doubt. And it tends to drain the life out of our practice. The good news of what we do here is we can turn our attention to this is the story of doubt. We can actually use the energy of doubt. We can feel it in our bodies. We can feel that heaviness. Bring that light of attention to it, which allows us to recognize it as just a state of mind. Not me, not mine, doesn't define me. It's just a state of mind that visited, that tormented me when I didn't notice it, but is now, because I'm feeling it, noticing it, it is now my, my manure. It's now my fertilizer. It's now been the cause of uh, my awareness. It's been, uh, it is actually, and it's actually, as I felt it and felt the pain of it, it's been the cause of my compassion too, for how far I can wander out of the simple moments of sense experience to this feeling of feeling so bad in really within the mat in a matter of seconds. How can you not be merciful when you see how easily we can fall into that? But we tend to just pile on. We tend to add that piercing arrow, that piercing arrow of, to our heart of that torment. We add to it more torment. We add a whole new story about how, uh, how I shouldn't have that. And we just keep shooting the arrows. So this is why we practice mindful attention. This is why we practice loving kindness, because we all fall into the, to these torments. But they are our path. And we can have a lot of fun with them. 
<laughs> that doesn't sound like fun, does it? <laughs> so the doubt, uh, for doubt, the, the quality that the antidote or the quality, the, the traditional antidotes are to, um, because it's the opposite of faith and confidence, is, is to, uh, to read something that inspires you, to connect with somebody who inspires you, to, um, to remember, to reflect on why you started, et cetera, et cetera. But in the most immediate sense, what really comes out of our practice is that quality of sustained attention. If you sustain your attention, if you practice some degree of continuity, that quality of vichara, staying with, not just glancing at things, but being with them really carefully, in a gentle way, and not in a heavy-handed way that, you, that you're busy judging yourself how sustained you are, but in a very gentle way, increase the sense of continuity. What it does is it creates a certain kind of strength, a certain, it's as though you take all these disparate strings of mindful moments and it starts to coalesce or congeal into this very strong rope, a kind of strength of a mindful tension. And interestingly enough, that strength of mind doesn't let the, the doubt overtake us. It doesn't let the restlessness and worry overtake us. So the strength of mind, of course it will ebb and flow through the day, but the strength of our practice will actually uh, protect us from these um, states of mind that are so tormenting. The key is mindfulness. So I'd like to close with a passage from the Venerable Ajahn Chah. It's kind of a general, he starts this, it's a question and answer, and he starts by being asked about, um, about thinking, but you can expand it to include everything that we experience. I still have many thoughts. My mind wanders a lot, even though I'm trying to be mindful. Don't worry about this. Keep your mind in the present. Whatever there is that arises in the mind, notice it and let it be and let it go. Don't even wish to be rid of thoughts and the mind will reach its natural state. No discriminating between good and bad, hot and cold, fast and slow. No me and no you. No self at all. Just what there is. When you walk, there's no need to do anything special. Simply walk and see what there is. No need to cling to isolation or seclusion. Wherever you are, know yourself by being natural and noticing. If doubts arise, notice them. Come and notice them go. It's very simple. Hold on to nothing. It is as though you're walking down a road. Periodically, you'll run into obstacles. When you meet defilements, see them and overcome them by letting them go, letting them come and go. Don't think about the obstacles you've passed already. Don't worry about those you've not yet seen. Stick to the present. Don't be concerned about the length of the road or about a destination. Everything is changing. Whatever you pass, don't cling to it. Eventually, the mind will reach its natural balance where practice is automatic. All things will come and go of themselves. This is a, I'm hesitating, but I, I'll read it anyway. Sitting for hours on end is not necessary. <laughs> Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sitting on their nest for days on end. <laughs> Wisdom, <laughs> wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you awaken in the morning. It should continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. What's important is that you keep watchful, whether you're working, sitting, or going to the bathroom. Each person has his or her own natural pace. Some of you will die at age 60, 50, some at age 65, some at age 90. So too, your practice will not be identical. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful. Let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter 
and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of a Buddha. So staying in your position right now, just enjoy the happiness of a Buddha. You are the Buddha. It is your own nature. May all beings meet the hindrances with balance and grace. Thanks for your attention, especially those who have heard many, many hindrance talks. <laughs> so much appreciate your practice and um, just Stay where you are. I don't mean literally, I mean just present. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.